Hello, I'm Jason Solomons and this is Sounds Jewish from The Guardian. In this month's podcast, ahead of his official trip to Britain, we find out why Pope Benedict is wading into troubled waters again with Jews. And should we be worried about a rightward drift in the Vatican, one that's even seen Holocaust deniers back in the Catholic Church? And while Christians are tying themselves up in knots over women priests, female rabbis are on the rise. However, sexism is still alive and kicking. I can remember one colleague, she'd given a sermon, all had gone very well. I think one of the elderly congregants came up and said afterwards, you know, you know, Rabbi, I just want to say you've got a lovely pair of legs. And a live acoustic klezmer set in studio with cellist Francesca Turberg. This is Sounds Jewish from The Guardian. And joining me in the podcast studio this month is Peter Stanford, broadcaster, journalist and author of The Extra Mile, The 21st Century Pilgrim. Welcome, Peter. And Rabbi Miriam Berger, Rabbi of Finchley Reform Synagogue in North London. Welcome to you both. Peter, I'll start with you. Welcome into our world. Uh, You're ex-editor of the Catholic Herald, of course, a a brilliant newspaper in itself. Uh, But was one of its remits to look at other religions and what was going on there? Catholicism doesn't have a particularly good history um, in terms of looking at other religions. Um, it is always rather assumed that it, it, uh, it made it all up in the first place, so therefore why bother looking at how other people did it? And um, that was certainly how I was brought up. We, were, uh, we lived in a very exclusive Catholic world, to the, not just to the extent of going to, you know, we only mixed the people we went to church with and went to school with, but if we went to the dentist, we had to go to a Catholic dentist. If we wanted something built on the house, we went to a Catholic architect. It was very, very close. And I had no sense there was anyone outside that. Where so was this, Peter? This was near Liverpool, inevitably, somehow. Um, actually, there were Protestants outside, but we weren't told, we were told not to speak to them because they'd try and uh, ruin our faith all the time. So, you know, the last 30 years have been a kind of a growing experience. But, I mean, I, I, you know, uh, as soon as you look at religion, and I, I've, I've written a lot about the history of religion, um, you realise that, that they're, all, they're all saying very similar things. Yeah. They're all coming from a similar place. Any good Catholic dentists? Has he done a nice, nice bit of job there? Well, I, I, well it's radio, thankfully, so you can't see how crooked my teeth are. <laughs> I mean, we, there's a lot of Jewish dentists. That's certainly true, Miriam. Yeah. Did you have to go to Jewish dentists? I didn't. I don't think it do, was a case of uh, having to. I think it was a case of well, they're the people you know, and so you know, of course, you'd go to the Jewish dentist. And uh, I think the only time we sort of didn't go down that route was when you were looking for a handyman or anything to be fixed, because clearly that just wasn't our speciality. We don't have those. No. Um, I don't know if the Catholics are particularly good at. Oh, building. You know, lots and lots of, you know, Irish labourers, 19th century, you all see. came over. So massive, you know, gene pool it's of a skills. miracle we've got anything done. This September, Pope Benedict will be making his first official visit to Britain, including in his packed itinerary of open-air masses and prayer vigils, will be a keynote speech to both Houses of Parliament. But the timing of this speech has angered some in the Jewish community since it coincides with the final hours before Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement, the holiest day in the Jewish calendar. The chief rabbi, Jonathan Sachs, has already stated he won't be able to attend, as have several other Jewish MPs and peers. Although there are no suggestions that this clash is deliberate, it has put an already strained relationship between the Vatican and the Jews in the spotlight once again. Peter Stanford, is this perceived insensitivity a one-off in recent years or is it typical of the strained relationship? It is both typical and probably not deliberate. I mean, I think there's a... 
Uh, all sorts of things are going on here. There's a, there's a sense that the, the Vatican is rather chaotic um, in, t- in its planning. I think we, we, we've seen that endlessly and, and the Pope sort of uh, saying things that he shouldn't really say in the wrong place. And then actually, to, absolutely to his credit, Benedict XVI, he then turns around and apologises, which is something we've never yeah. seen before. I, think, I mean, I don't know about the Vatican, but it always strikes me as quite a sort of sort of antiquated Absolutely. place. They don't, they don't have iCal, I shouldn't imagine. They have diaries that sort of pop up and say, well, it's Yom Kippur that day, don't do it. It won't be in their diary. They'll have the Catholic Truth Society diary, which won't list it. So, I mean, as a kind of throwback to kind of earlier ideas. But I think, I mean, I, I think it is terribly antiquated. And we got a very, very good example of that a couple of years ago when, um, you mentioned it in the, in, in the introduction, uh, when Pope Benedict, he, one of his policies has been really a kind of big tent policy. So he wants everyone who was slightly alienated from the Catholic Church to kind of rejoin to, to, to be nice to them. So he's been nice to liberals like Hans Kung, um, but he's also tried to bring in these uh, ghastly traditionalists called the Society of Pope Pius IX, it is, isn't it? Why are they um, ghastly? The Lefervorists. Well, they're the people who reject everything everything that happened at the Second Vatican Council from 62 to 65, which was the great modernisation, the great opening of the church, uh, the great acceptance of other religions. They reject all of that, absolutely. So he decided he was going to bring them all back in, and, uh, and, and one of their leaders is a man called Bishop R- Richard Williamson, who's British, yes. and, and it then turned out British, Bishop Richard Williamson was a Holocaust denier. And the Pope was horrified by this, apologised for it the next day, then sent out this extraordinary letter to his bishops where he said, if only I'd looked at the internet, I would have, you know, have realised what a kind of freak this man was, really, and I wouldn't have done it. And you just had this awful image that he's the Pope. He's in charge of this organisation of 1.2 billion people around the world. You know, they've got offices everywhere. They're the biggest multinational in the world in lots of ways. And he hasn't got a computer in the papal apartments. Or has he not got someone outside the door thinking, Richard Williamson, I'll just pop pop his name in. Nobody's doing that. And the fact he admitted it. So I think they are extraordinarily antiquated. That's a a big thing, obviously, for Jews to have Richard Williamson as a Holocaust denier back in the the fold. He's not not in the fold. Actually, it's really important because you said at the beginning that he has been taken back into the fold. Um, The the Pope uh, then said that he absolutely had to refute those those remarks that he'd made, reject those. And Williamson said something half-hearted in terms of, well, you know, I wish I hadn't really given the interview, which Mm. wasn't quite the same as refuting them. So he hasn't been let back in the fold until he will do that. There is a deep sort of history of anti-Semitism in the Catholic Church. And I think that when uh, this Pope, Pope Benedict, came to the came to power I think many Jews were a bit suspect because of his his past because he was kind of related to and everyone knew he had a sort of Hitler youth past um do you think that Jews uh, Rabbi Miriam Berger think of the Pope as a former Nazi I think we are suspicious and cautious and careful. Um, And I also think that we're very bad as Jews at remembering that we're a small minority group. So when, because my dentist and doctor happen to be Jewish, I think that when the Pope is putting things in his diary, uh, he should be worrying about uh, what the Jews in Britain are going to be doing. He was organising a trip to England and not a trip to Israel. But I think because of the Pope's past, because of this Hitler youth image that we've uh, we've been given, it's going to play into every reaction that he now takes. No, I'm not the Pope's biggest admirer, but I think it's really, really important to say... This Pope, uh, you mean, this or the Pope, Pope in general? Ben, ben, no, this, this particular Pope, that, you know, he grew up at a particular time in Germany. His father had been a policeman, was chucked out of the police because he was, because he was anti-Nazi. Um, one, of, but one of the things that Benedict has said, one of the abiding memories of his childhood is seeing the priest dragged out of, the, um, out of, the, out of their local Catholic church by Hitler Youth um, and beaten up because he was kind of 
anti-Nazi. Um, you know, I, I think this idea. I think everyone had to join the Hitler Youth. I, don't, mm. I mean, there's no people have dug and dug and dug and dug on this story to try and find some evidence that somehow he really did like it, or, or you know, he really wanted to do it. Or, I mean, there's no evidence for that no, indeed, at all. But, so I, I'm, I'm aware of he's that, just but German. it's sort of got I mean, stuck. It's probably just a German. Yeah, he's just German. He's German of a certain generation. And, and, and yes, you have to be very sensitive, and I think he can be very insensitive. So, for instance, when he wrote a sort of, it's not quite a memoir, but it's a kind of a story of his kind of growing up, really. I mean, there's virtually no reference to the Holocaust at all. It's almost as if it didn't happen or he hadn't quite noticed. And I think that's really, really unfortunate. Um, it's worse than unfortunate. It's, it's, I mean, it's terrible. Um, so I think, I think he can be insensitive, but I, think we, I just think, if I, if, I can re- if I can reassure you, Miriam, I mean, he might have been in the Hitler Youth, but he really isn't a kind of raging anti-Semite. But Pope Pius XII, who was the, the wartime pope, he didn't, not only didn't mention the war, I mean, he didn't sort of notice the oh, war. He was awful. I mean, he was just, I mean, no, you're, not, you're not meant to say that. I mean, he was just ghastly. You can say um, that I can say that. Um, I mean, and one of the problems, one of the big problems I have with the Vatican is, why can't they just accept that? Um, so, you know, here we are um, in 2010, 1965, Second Vatican Council, great reforming moment of the Catholic Church, Nostra Aetate, the document that said that, that Catholicism sort of repented almost of its, of its anti-Semitic past, wanted to build better relationships with Judaism. Um, if you're going to do that... You have to acknowledge your own past. You have to acknowledge your own recent past. And for some, I mean, Pius XII doesn't appear to have had any redeeming qualities whatsoever. <laughs> um, so quite why we're so anxious to defend him all the time. Is there, is there still an attempt to canonise him? Is oh, still, absolutely. Still I mean, this, that's, a, that's a problem for the Jews, this, isn't it? It's a, it's a problem for Catholics as well. So what has happened is there's been this huge uh, um, international outcry, not just from Jews, but, but from, from lots of people, about Pius XII's wartime record. Which is? The, um, he said nothing. He, uh, he knew it was happening. He said nothing. His predecessor, Pius XI, died in, I think, 1939 and was, was in the process of writing, um, of actually written a document which was all about how wicked and awful Nazism was. Uh, Pius XII cho- chose not to publish it. Um, he then said nothing at all about anything, all during the war. Um, and there's a lot of, you know, the evidence... Well, is, he was, do we know he was aware of oh, the abs- deportations, abs- of camps? Of- I was so aware. I mean, utterly aware. He, and and his, the excuse is that he felt the church ought to remain neutral. Um, and that somehow when the peace settlement came, if he'd managed to remain neutral, people would respect him. Well, you know, the P- he remained neutral, the peace settlement came, and no one took a blind bit yeah, of notice There is a him. move that says, well, you know, by saying nothing, in a way he sort of... Didn't, he didn't get involved and in any way saved quite a number of Jews rather than kind of... The, ev- the evidence fired. is really, really sketchy. I mean, that's, that's one of the defences that's always made, you know, quietly behind the scenes he was, he was saving the Jews of Rome. Um, I think the reality... He, he, wasn't like, he wasn't like Oscar Schindler, was he? He wasn't sort of piling them no, into he's a getting other, No, he's getting other people to do it, I mean, is the argument, which is why it's very, very hard to kind of pin down what he did. Um, but, I, I mean, I, I, you know, and the Catholic Church is attitude now to the, the very legitimate criticisms and questions that have been raised about Pius XII's role. Instead of actually sitting down and saying, I mean, they, they say that he did all these wonderful things, and then the evidence, of course, is in the Vatican archives. And then, so, you know, Jewish historians are very sensibly said, well, you know, let's have a look at the evidence. And they say, oh, we haven't filed it yet, sorry, we haven't done the filing, we've only had the 60 years to do the filing, so we haven't done it, so can you all wait? And, I, and at the same time as saying that, what the Vatican is also saying is we're going to canonise this man. I mean, what message does it send out? From Catholics to the Church of England, it's reportedly on the brink of a compromise over the issue which has divided Anglicans for decades, the ordination 
of women priests. Meanwhile, it's 35 years since the first female rabbi, Jackie Tabak, was ordained in Britain under the auspices of progressive Judaism. And now half of progressive Judaism's rabbis are women. But it's not always been a smooth path, as our reporter Karen Glazer found out. I'm Alexandra Wright. I'm the senior rabbi of the Liberal Jewish Synagogue in St John's Wood, London. I was the seventh woman to be ordained and so still in very much a minority. There was a lot of patronising comments. I mean, I remember once I was working as a new rabbi, probably had been ordained for about a year or two, and um, went to do prayers in a house of mourning And a little old Scottish fellow came up to me who was a mourner. He was the brother of the person who died, clearly quite disarmed by the fact that this was a woman who was leading the prayers, said, where do you hang your tzitzit from then, from your bra? And of course, because he was a mourner, I couldn't retort. And disapproval goes beyond comments about women wearing religious garments. Casual, everyday sexism seems to be part of the job too, as Shulamit Ambalu, rabbi of North London Progressive Synagogue in Hackney and also of Milton Keynes, explains. I can remember one colleague who was in fact a student rabbi. She'd given a, 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 done a very long morning service, she'd given a sermon, all had gone very well and the, um, I think one of the elderly congregants came up and said afterwards, you know, you know, rabbi, I just want to say you've got a lovely pair of legs. I'm Rebecca Kassenberg. I am one of the rabbis at Westminster Synagogue and soon to be the rabbi at Finchley Progressive Synagogue early next year. I've had three children since I've had since I've been a rabbi. I have um, fed uh, all my children, breastfed all my children, and once, only in Sweden, only in Stockholm, was I able to lead a service and feed the baby at the same time in a quiet moment in the service. So there. There have been good and challenging moments. I think um, I think there is that there is that sense of when they're reminded of your femaleness when you're pregnant or when you are feeding a baby or indeed even when you have a child pulling at your leg saying "Mummy," then for sure, for sure, people are reminded heavily of you being a woman and make comments to reflect that. The Orthodox Jewish world doesn't recognise women rabbis and Alex Wright admits there were tensions in the early days. My own experience sitting on a panel with an Orthodox rabbi, what, let's say 20 odd years ago, the rudeness and the insults from this particular Orthodox rabbi. Recently, I sat on a very small panel with... um, with a, the local Orthodox rabbi here to address a meeting in the local church. He was incredibly respectful. Liberal Judaism isn't for him and it's not for his congregants, and I respect that. But he recognizes that I'm the rabbi of the Liberal Jewish Synagogue. A generation ago, we would not have even the title rabbi accorded to us. And that's a big change. So you'd think that with 33 women rabbis now serving in Britain, the old traditional mindset might be on its way out. Shulamit Ambalu says there's still some way to go. Some of my esteemed colleagues will still call some very senior rabbis girls. Come on, girls. And that's quite shocking when you, you, he's sitting alongside someone who has as much seniority as him. There's still an enormous amount of work to be done, particularly for me as a senior rabbi of a very large synagogue. I'm... I'm the fifth senior rabbi in a hundred years. 
and long-standing, long-serving, very beloved rabbis with very sort of male authority. And for a five-foot-one woman to come and occupy the role of senior rabbis is a huge turnaround for people. On the whole, I've only met with positive um, reception. I don't think I've met with massive amounts of resistance, although I do see it alive and kicking in some areas. Progressive Judaism is now pretty fully egalitarian, so I think women rabbis are more comfortable, but I think there are still pockets where where the respect is not even. But I think more and more there's an appreciation of what rabbis can bring, whether they're male or female. Well, we're very lucky to have an ordained rabbi with us, Rabbi Miriam Berger. Do any of those stories heard a chime with you, apart from the breastfeeding in the middle of a service uh, thing? Which, which I'm I, just not sure is appropriate. Not sure is right I'm, anywhere. No, you know, I'm In the middle sure. of a job. You know. right. so it is your job, if, isn't it, when you're up there? Right, if I went to work. see my GP and she was feeding her, her child in the middle of my appointment, I'd also be a bit concerned. So I'm not... I'm not advocating necessarily <laughs> breastfeeding on the bimmer, I have to say. Fine. Um, We've got that sort of... But you, you have got nice legs. Has anyone said that to you? you. Not enough people, actually, I think. <laughs> um, I think there's a sense of, you know, I'm a woman doing a job and I have no problem when... People come up to me after the service and say, oh, rabbi, you know, do I get to kiss the rabbi this week and that kind of thing? Well, you know, if that's what's going to mean that you come to shul this week or if that's the only way that as an 80-year-old man you can relate to me, then that's fine. Does he come every um, week? That <laughs> he does, and I, I don't have a problem with it. Um, I think there's a, a, a fact that I, when women are doing jobs that have traditionally been a male ground um we're very sensitive to are people treating us differently because we're women and actually we are different we are women i i do my job differently to how male colleagues do their job um and i expect people to res- respond to me differently i don't want to be an honorary man i'm a woman and i'm a rabbi you um i know you grew up as uh, the daughter of a rabbi uh, as well tony bayfield so um but that he was part of the reform movement so there were always women rabbis i grew up as well always it's not strange to me to have a woman rabbi but my father always is still a bit sort of even though he's been a reform member for many years he he sort of always slightly finds women rabbis a bit strange he doesn't think they should wear tolices he finds it a bit of a a bit of a problem when he sees them in in prayer shawls that a generational thing i mean i think we do it to a certain extent to a lot of women in a lot of jobs how many times have you got on a bus and seen a woman driver and thought you know there's that moment of this has not always been familiar now for me um Jackie Tabbit was ordained 35 years ago. I'm only 31. So there have always been women rabbis around and I'm very grateful to them to have fought some battles that I don't feel I have to, to fight anymore. But we have I, a lot of my female colleagues talk about glass ceilings and uh, you know Alex Wright was talking just then about um, only being the fifth senior rabbi uh, of her particular synagogue. Now I think her role That's is... The, a, the London Jewish... The, the, the Jewish, LJS, the Liberal Jewish, Jewish Synagogue yes. in St. John's Wood. Now I think... Her role there is a great achievement, but I don't think it's a great achievement necessarily because she's a woman and she's been accepted as a woman. But we make decisions as women and we, you know, please God, one day I'll also make a decision about whether I'm going to take a career break to have children or whether I'm going to try and be a mum and a rabbi all at the same time. And we make decisions. And in the same way as there are not the same number of women who are top of legal firms and banking firms and all sorts of other things in the city, um, we as women make decisions, which I, I think we need to get over and cope with the fact that we're making those decisions. Do you remember the day you turned around to your dad and said, I want to be a rabbi too? 
uh, there wasn't really a day. It's something that I kind of always knew I was going to be. Um, I just wanted to be a rabbi. So uh, he's sort of, uh, he's, he's never dissuaded me from it. He was never pushing me saying, you have to be a rabbi. Uh, but it certainly was never anything that he, um, he was worried about. My grandparents, um, I think, would have thought it was a more normal job for my brother rather than me. Um, but now I'm doing it there. You know, they had my gown made for me on ordination. Uh, you're in the progressive movement here in the UK, obviously, because if you were in the orthodox movement, you wouldn't be able to be a, a rabbi. What's, uh, are those battles ongoing or is it just do you simply have to kind of say, well, if I want a woman rabbi, I'm going to have to go to the reform or liberal movement. It's not going to happen in orthodox. Is that never going to happen? I can't see it happening uh, in the Orthodox world in the same way as, uh, you know, the Catholic um, Church is, is going through the same issues. Uh, I, I, there are so many differences between um, Reform and Orthodox Judaism. I feel comfortable within Reform Judaism for a multitude of reasons, and, it's, and one of those reasons is egalitarianism, and through that egalitarianism is the ordination of women rabbis. Peter Stanford, if I can turn to you. At the moment, we're, we're sort of looking in, in the news every day, and the Synod is, is talking about the ordination of women bishops here in the, in the UK. Uh, why has the ordination of women caused so much fracturing in, in the Anglican Church? And, I mean, and in the Catholic Church, I think it's complete rejection, isn't it? Uh, yes, we're not allowed to talk about it. So I'm, right. I'm committing a sin by talking about it now. Pope John Paul II said we weren't to talk about it ever again because it was never going to happen. Uh, well, I mean, one of the reasons is because there are lots of incredibly able women who, who feel called to ministry. And um, who are we to say that, that that call isn't genuine? I think it's an extraordinary thing to turn around and say to a woman, well, you feel called, but hey, you can't. Um, well, what can they do? They uh, nothing. Church? Arrange the flowers. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. I mean, you know, more than half of the world's Catholics are women, um, and they are allowed no role in leadership whatsoever. Uh, and, and it's shocking. It's, it's appalling. And the argument, as far as... I mean, if you push them and push them and push them on the argument, they say Jesus, the, Jesus chose 12 male apostles and there are only men at the Last Supper. I mean, we, we don't even know the Last Supper took place uh, historically. I mean, how do we know who was there? Who cooked the food? Who cooked I've seen exactly. exactly. Um, it's just, it's, even Paul Johnson, the most right-wing of, of Catholics, wrote a piece in The Spectator a while ago saying, if this is the Catholic Church's only uh, justification for not ordaining women, it's ridiculous. I mean, there are obviously many aspects that one can, one can talk about, about sort of modernising both religions and the Church. But, um, it's, it's not, but let's, let's be really clear, it's not about modernising, because you, there's plenty of archaeological evidence uh, that, that women, there were women priests, women ministers, women deacons in the early Church. So it's not about modernising, it's not about suddenly doing it in a 21st century way um this, this is what they did at the beginning and uh, we we've just changed it's right. we who've changed not the faith peter i'm going to let you go at this point thank you for dipping your toe into our sounds jewish this month it's been a pleasure thank you grab your fiddle tune your accordion and crack it's like crazy on your clarinet because Klezfest is here, hitting London for one week only in August. The halls and classrooms of SOAS at the University of London will be transformed into the shtetls of Eastern Europe. The sounds of klezmer wafting along the corridors. Joining us in the Sounds Jewish studio now are cellist Francesca Turberg and accordionist Carol Isaacs, both of whom will be giving workshops and recitals through the week-long festival. Welcome to Sounds Jewish, ladies. You can't get more Jewish than Klezmer. Uh, Francesca, is Klezmer exclusively a Jewish music? Well, Klezmer was played by the Jews of Eastern Europe, but it's reflective of the style that would have been played in, in the areas 
where the Jewish people lived and sometimes they would have mixed with the local gypsy communities and if it was in the Ukraine, the Ukrainian village folk, for example, and so Klezma from the Ukraine sounds like Ukrainian folk music and Klezma from Romania sounds like Romanian folk music. So we're talking about the wide diaspora of that Eastern Europe, we're talking Ukraine, Poland, Silesia, all of those areas. Exactly. So it, it is a, it is a magpieing in music as well, is it? Mm-hmm. It kind of picked up what was the local kind of instrumentation. What signifies Klezma for you? It's a few different things. It's it's definitely the the melodies and the the modes that they're in. These minor keys, mostly. There's my favourite mode is uh, Fragish, which is very very Eastern European sounding mode of minor second and Fragish. Like, yeah, is it a Yiddish term? Uh, it's it's Yiddish. Yeah, it's it's got um it's got other names in jazz and right. In so it should be played Fragish. Yeah, so Fragish would be do 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 which I'm sure you I can love recognize. it. My first kind of uh, a real kind of uh, affirmation of classical music is is uh, Rhapsody in Blue, the start of Gershwin, there, that mm. clarinet, that kind of... Everyone says this is the sound of New York and the sirens coming up from the streets, but for me, it's a Fragish phrase uh, that kind of is redolent of the shtetls and the ghettos that's kind of informing the Gershwin sound of one of the great pieces of music, mm. which is why I think Woody Allen probably used it in Manhattan. Am I right? Am I, am I right? I'm right. There's definitely also, some I'm Jewish right. influences in there. It was what, what happened was a lot of the Jewish musicians moved to New York and that sound really continued over there. It became a bit jazzier and big band sounding, but it's still there. Carol Isaacs, if I can bring you in here, you're the accordionista. Uh, is it a dance music? Is it a celebration music? Is it a, a sad music? Is Fragish, Fragish is sort of, it's kind of bluesy in, it's, in a yeah, way. It's Jewish what, what... blues. I think you're right. It is it's celebration music, but in the celebrations, you would, it would always be a chance to cry. And you'd always, like there is one example in a wedding, you would make the bride cry. The badkan, the master of ceremonies, would actually go out of his way to make the bride cry, to remind her that, you know, life is not just all a bed of roses. There are some dark times ahead, and they were before. So, yeah, there would be some very sad times, but also very happy. A lot of dancing would be involved. Forget about alcohol. It's all about the dance and getting up and, you know, after you eat, you get up and you dance. Um, but, uh, Miriam, you, you do weddings a lot. You're a rabbi. Of you course, do, let's, let's be honest, that's what you, you know, it's quite a good and booking trotted for trotted out for those good, kind exactly. of things. Uh, have you worked with Klezma yourself? Have you I been always there? think it's hysterical. However alternative the couple are that come and see me, you know, they, they're not going to be in a wedding dress, no veil, they're going to have their daughter that they've already had who's going to be the bridesmaid and all of this, but then they need to have Klezma music at the end of the wedding ceremony and it all suddenly, it doesn't matter how alternative they are, the Klezma music is the, the thing that marks it out as a Jewish wedding. Yeah, is London where it's at, Klezma-wise, in yes. Europe, Francesca? Well, you've got me and Carol in the studio. <laughs> Listen, to me, this is where it's at. This is, yeah. uh, this is the right hot centre of Klezmer universe here. No, there's definitely not a lot going on in London. There's a big, uh, a very popular Balkan Klezmer sort of mixed up scene um, here with loads of different club nights, stuff at the South Bank, Barbican, all that kind of thing. But I'd say probably the main hubs are in America and Germany as well. I hear well. Germany is very big in mm. Germany. Yeah, there is, it is really. There's been a big... Um, uprise in, in Germany of, of Klezmer popularity, um, partly because some of the, the top Klezmer people from America moved over there as a good base for them to do research in Eastern Europe. Right. And Klezfest is happening uh, August the 8th to the 13th. Uh, what is happening at Klezfest? What is Klezfest? If I went to Klezfest, what would I find? You would find a lot of amazing musicians from all over the world coming to learn about this music. Um, the teachers, the faculty, they're also a mixture of London-based and international um, top top musicians in their field. Um, there's workshops all day. 
There's um, four concerts happening at the Union Chapel and at SOAS, which you can um, oh, all find out on the web. good the Union Chapel. I love that mm, place. Amazing venue. Clesfest sounds fantastic. Uh, it's going to be brilliant. Very busy time for you, obviously, but uh, brilliant to be playing your, your instruments for, for uh, what I hope is a great audience. You can go to jmi.org.uk for ticket information, how to get tickets, what's going to be on at Clesfest, what you should wear uh, for proper Klezmer dancing, for connecting and cretching. Uh, um, Carol and uh, Francesca, very nice to see you. Francesca Turberg and Carol Isaacs. You're going to play out for a bit of klezmer uh, for us here on Sounds Jewish. So before you do that, I've got to thank my guest, Peter Stanford, to Rabbi Miriam Berger, who's still here. Are you ready to cretch? I'm looking forward to it. Uh, and also to our sponsors, of course, the Jewish Community Centre for London. Here at Sounds Jewish, we're taking a summer break. We'll be back in September in time for the High Holy Days with our Yontif outfits. But from me, Jason Solomons, and my producer, Sarah Peters, it's goodbye and happy klezmering. Mm-hmm.